Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. With me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to further understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 20th of June, 2022, and this is episode 260. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talked to Dr. Matt Leonard about tunnelling and subterranean operations during the First World War. Matt is the editor of the WFA's journal Stand To, and he spoke to me from his home in Wiltshire. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and your interest in tunnelling during the Great War? Hi, Tom. Um, thanks very much. Great to talk to you. Well, yeah, sure. My t- uh, interest in tunnelling in the Great War, well, it, it wasn't something which I've always been interested in. I'll give you a bit of background. So um, my his- my interest in history definitely comes from my father. He's um, He was a submariner. He's retired from the Navy now, but he was a submariner and an avid reader, and he really got me involved in history from a very early age. But it wasn't until um, probably I did my undergrad in history, um, which I graduated in in 1999, and then did what everybody does when they have a history degree, and that's abandon history and move to London and work in the commercial sector <laughs> to earn a bit of money, uh, which I which I did for a number of years. But there was always this, I've always felt um, career-wise, job-wise, that um, working in the commercial sector is fine and all the rest of it, and it's obviously good for your bank balance, but it, it wasn't doing enough for the soul. So I was always after an opportunity to change what I did for a living, I suppose. Um, and that happened in 2008 uh, when uh, our daughter was born. And the week our daughter was born, I got made redundant. So that was a sort of bit of a shock. And it, but it gave me the chance to be able to refocus, I suppose. Um, so I, I looked for a master's degree I could do. And I found one at Bristol University which was a new subject called modern conflict archaeology and the point of modern conflict archaeology was to look at conflict since 1914 but to look at it sort of outside the strictly military history parameters so focus very much on objects and landscapes and the way we interact with the world around us so i did that um very much enjoyed it and uh, i knew about halfway through that I wanted to try and do a PhD if I could. Um, the question really was what I did a PhD in. And originally I was going to do it in these martyr villages around Verdun, which I've always found very, very interesting. The problem, of course, of that is Verdun is a long, long way from Bath um, for a start. Uh, and it's very, very time consuming. It's also, for those listening to this who've been to Verdun, they'll probably understand what I mean. It's quite a dark place, you know, Verdun. It's somewhere that's great to visit. Um, but whether or not I wanted to spend the next sort of four or five years of my life there, I wasn't too sure. And while I was doing this, I managed to meet um, Major Andy Hawkins and Lieutenant Colonel Mike Dollimore, both of who were in the Durand group, uh, who specialised in this kind of underground research. And they gave um, an open invite to go to France with them, uh, which I took them up on. And on day one, I found myself out there with a load of people I didn't know who were all incredibly competent and extremely close-knit and going down into a German listening tunnel at Serre. Um, I got down to the bottom of it and rather than being petrified and asking myself all these questions, what the hell am I doing here? I realised I 
not only did I feel at home, but I'd found what it, what it is I wanted to do. Um, and then after that, never looked back, went back to the university, started my doctorate in, um, uh, in looking at the underground war um, and then just went from there, really. So, yeah, slightly a slightly different way of getting into it. But once I think once I was exposed to these landscapes, which I didn't know very much about, it changed the way I looked at things, really. Which brings me neatly to my second question is why is this an important issue or topic? Yeah, I, I mean, it's. <laughs> I was looking at the the sort of questions we'd spoken about before we did this, and um, you know that is what that's a doozy of a question. We could we could probably do a few podcasts on that, I imagine. But the biggest, I think, it comes in. You know, let me think about this. How to best answer this? I think the reason why it's such an important issue more than anything else is that I believe we are we do slightly look at the First World War wrong in terms of the front lines. So I, I would argue that the entirety of the First World War, particularly on the very, very front lines, was all underground. It was all subterranean. You know, even a trench, you're underground, okay? And then it just goes down and deeper and deeper and deeper, all the way down. Okay, so I think that perhaps what we do is we, we look at tunnelling, and again, we'll talk later, perhaps tunnelling isn't the right word, but we look at tunnelling as being a kind of an adjunct, an add-on, somehow to what was going on when actually it was completely intrinsic to it couldn't have happened without it so I think we've slightly looked at it wrong and the reason the main reason for that I think is probably just access you know it's very very hard to do this kind of work now yes it's possible sometimes to get into an underground system with relatively with relative ease but most of the time it requires a huge amount of research a huge amount of um conversations negotiations with local landowners and all that kind of stuff mayors politicians etc and then you need obviously a team that can find these places and get in and cope with these extreme environments um in a manner that's safe so that's why i think it's important the second thing of course is that or another thing rather is that um, there is almost none of the surface battlefields left, really. I mean, I know we have these isolated pockets around the place, and there are a number of them, but they're isolated pockets that have been kind of preserved. Um, whereas underneath that surface, there's a whole world down there that essentially kind of went to sleep in 1918, um, rather while the rest of the world above carried on. Um, so I think that there's this whole hidden landscape down there, which is a very important part of understanding what life on the first uh, on the front lines of the first world war was like so that's where i find it's very very important um the other thing i think which we can get to in a minute is that there there is a, a thing that some listeners might be um familiar with a sort of an, an idea of phenomenology an idea of trying to actually put yourself in the place of people from the past and experience what they experienced now it has its detractors. I'm not a complete convert to that myself, but there are certain times, I think, for us students of the past where we can find places that exist, which are almost time capsules. And going into these tunnel systems and these underground structures, there is very, very little difference really being in there for me today than there were soldiers 100 plus years ago. I mean, apart from the obvious, Okay, no one's trying to kill me. But these places, other than that, retain almost everything. Um, you know, they're covered in material culture. The idea of being in them is the same. 
the sensorial pressures are the same, the risks of lack of oxygen, of collapse, all these type of things remain the same. So I think if you can arm yourself with a, a holistic view of what life would have been like for soldiers and tunnelers, and then use that in conjunction with the history books and the personal memories and all that kind of stuff, you can be in there really get extremely close to understanding what it would have been like. Um, and I do say that delicately because I do understand that you, know, you cannot put yourself in the feet, you know, in the shoes rather of a first world war soldier. But I certainly would argue that the underground worlds of the Western front is, are the last remaining places where you can get somewhere near that. Which leads me neatly to my third question is what's the extent and nature of the tunnel systems from the great war? Is there still much left? Yeah, uh, it's hugely extensive, really extensive. In fact, um, as uh, my good friend Philip Robinson once said to me, and I love using this line because he said it to me and not in a book, so I can genuinely say it. Um, you know, his argument was that the trench lines of the Western Front were but the battlements of a submerged fortress. And I think that's a very, very good way of looking at what underground warfare was like. So maybe it's a bit of a stretch to say that for every trench there was a tunnel but you're not far off um, and that went all the way from Flanders all the way down to the Swiss border and if you look at that on other uh, fronts Isonzo etc you've got this stuff going on up in the mountains in glaciers it it was something that completely underpinned what went on so yes it's still there hard to get to because uh, generally speaking after the war these entrances were blown in um, for safety reasons or of course when ground was reclaimed um, perhaps it was bulldozed in etc but yes these if they're built in chalk or you know sturdy limestone then you can you can get in them uh, it's a bit more of a trouble when you get up to Flanders because of the geology uh, and the fact that these underground places will still be there but the moment you try and actually excavate them and pump the water out you're gonna you're gonna have a whole load of problems um, so generally speaking I tend to stick to um, the tunnels and the underground systems in chalk and limestone but um i think a big misconception perhaps when we're talking about the extent and nature of tunneling a big misconception is that the whole idea of underground warfare was to be offensive okay that we blow up each other's trenches we create these huge scars in the landscape your, your loch nagars your boot de vacuai etc and Yes, that is true. And of course, you know, we look at battles like well-known battles like the Battle of Messines in 17, and we can see the massive effect of mining and what it can do to enemy positions. But really, what you have with tunneling is it is the first and foremost a defensive endeavor. Okay. That's what it's for. It's to protect you. Once you're protected from the other people having the same ideas as you and coming towards you, then you can start your offensive uh you know your offensive digging towards the enemy lines so when we talk about the extent and nature what you're talking about is every time if, we, if i just look at it just from the british point of view just for ease i suppose um, rather than going into all the different nations and the way they would behave underground the british would certainly the moment they had trench lines fixed or positions fixed they would then look to dig down and to protect that from from below so they dig a huge what would be called a lateral which is essentially a kind of imagine a um a trench that's underground about sort of 25 meters down something in that region 
um, that's just in front of your trench and down. So anybody who wants to undermine you has to get under that first. And so that's the first thing that gets done. And then from there we go forward. But the problem is, is that, of course, you can't see what goes on underground unless you get down there. The only way you can actually see what's going on is when you see these livid scars on the surface, um, which twist what really the whole endeavor um, was about. Having said that, um, the first real um, time that offensive tunneling comes into our lexicon, if you like, was by the end of 1914. So it starts very, very early. Uh, the French and the Germans were mining and countermining in no man's land in the Argonne, uh, November 1914. Um, and probably the first attacks, although again, these things are always debatable, but probably the first attacks on the BEF um, took place at Festiver in December 14, when Germans blew 10 small mines under the um, under the Syrian Brigade of the India Corps. So you've got offensive, even though I'm saying it's defensive foremost, and it is, this stuff happens very, very fast. Okay, very, very competent. And then you can start your aggressive mining quite soon after. And to give you an idea of the extent, probably from the British point of view, underground warfare reached its peak um, in June 1916, um, where we, I would imagine that you could say it was going on under about two thirds of all of the British front lines. Uh, so very extensive. By this point, you end up with about, I think you end up with 33 tunnelling companies, if memory serves me right. Um, a mixture of British, Canadian, Australian, New Zealand, etc. Um, and if you think that the Germans are doing the same, the French are doing the same, maybe 100, 120,000 people on the front line, all involved directly in underground warfare in the middle of 1916. So, you know, when you're looking at that kind of extent, you know, this is no small endeavour. This is serious military engineering going on. Um, and of course, you know, probably need more time to go into this sort of thing. But when you see the extent of that, it, of course, pours cold water all over the idea of, you know, ignorant generals and doing it by the seat of their pants and that sort of stuff. <laughs> you don't go to this extent um, to protect people if that's what you're doing. So, yeah, hugely extensive. Um, but the nature wasn't always just trying to blow up massive mines in underneath German trenches or, or vice versa. That wasn't that wasn't really what it was about. And perhaps that's why this whole idea of calling it tunneling doesn't quite work. It's not the word doesn't quite cover it. If you see my point. Yeah. What was the sort of tactical and strategic impact of such sort of tunneling operations? Well, again, you're going to, we're going to have this problem here with the idea of tunneling. Um, it just doesn't sort of cover it adequately because what we need to remember is that if we're going to look at things in a strategic and a tactical, from a tactical point of view, we have to remember that, yes, there are tunnels, but as I've already explained, there are these defensive laterals going in anyway. So you've got a tunnel that runs parallel to a trench. So that's not offensive. Okay. But then it's not only just tunnels. So, Northern France in particular is absolutely littered with subterranean spaces, souterrains, the French call them, literally undergrounds. And a lot of these places are actually um, the remains of old quarries, 
So where the chalk was quarried out, taken up top and the villages were built with it. And of course, the other thing that um, that void underground gives you, and we're going right back now, you can go back as far as medieval times, um, is that that void then gives you protection for, for you and your family. And areas of northern France have been fought over for an awful long period of time. So way before the First World War, if you have a, some stairs leading down out of your little house underground into a hole that you can put your family in, um, you know, if the raiders come past, then all the better. So these things have a, have a long history in France, a long history in France. And of course, it didn't take long for the engineers of all sides on the Western Front to find these places. And once they found them, they kitted them out uh, to have all of the mod cons that you would associate with normal life, really. Um, so you have these huge spaces that would accommodate hundreds of men um, where you have kitchens, running water, um, chapels, you name it. I mean, you name it. it. It was down there. So when we think about strategic and tactical uses of tunneling, you can see where the word tunneling doesn't quite cover it. OK, so certainly strategically, you have these ideas of being able to keep men underground in relative safety. Uh, you have a type of tunnel which is very common known as a subway. And a subway's purpose was literally just to allow people to walk around underground and not have to worry about the surface. So it becomes a very effective way of moving men around. And then, of course, you have these deeper fighting tunnels. So strategically, it covers a whole load of different, um, ticks a whole load of different boxes. Uh, give, give you an idea, um, as we know, the, the often talked about first day of the Battle of the Somme with the, the huge casualty figures that the BEF took. The British forces took so many of those people were killed without even seeing a German. You know, they were shelled, of course, the moment the attacks go in on the, the, the rear and the reserve lines. But by the start of the Battle of Arras, uh, which is what less than a year later, uh, the British have got about 24,000 troops stationed in the below Arras in the Wellington mines, waiting to go straight into battle. So we've learned this idea of. We're not going to do that again. And within one year, these cave networks have been expanded. They've been linked to the trenches up top. And you've got tens of thousands of men in you know, pretty much in safety underground waiting to go up. So strategically, they can have it can have a massive impact. Tactically, um, tunneling can be done for all sorts of reasons. Uh, I mean, we we notice these big mine craters, uh, places like Notnagar, as we've mentioned. Uh, or the Spangbrock Molen up at uh, Messines. But those are the sort of remains of vast mines that went off um, to, to really cause a lot of damage. But mining was done in no man's land for all sorts of reasons. You can, depending on the types of explosives you were using, you might not breach the surface. You might just be looking to mine underground tactically, so to knock off German tunnels before your attacks go in, or to mislead the enemy tunnelers underground through subterfuge. Um, also, you might want to blow small mines that break the surface in no man's land because it can block the view of the enemy trenches or give you a sort of instant defensive position in no man's land. So there are so many different ways of using underground warfare tactically and strategically that we come back to this idea, which we talked about at the beginning of it being so vital to 
war on the Western Front that we we really should not look at it as something that's an add-on. It's something, in my opinion, a trench system of trench lines could not exist in the First World War without it being underpinned by subterranean defences. It just wouldn't last. It wouldn't work. So, yes, you 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 have a system, uh, you have a situation rather, where tunneling is influencing what's going on. Okay, it's at the core of everything. It isn't just a an afterthought. So, tactically and strategically, really the unlimited uses and potential. And you've talked about this already, but who did the tunneling and and constructed these underground uh, chambers? Uh, and were members of the Warwick Yeomanry involved, as portrayed in um, TV BBC TV's Peaky Blinders? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, Peaky Blinders. It, not only is it a cracking show, but the the scenes they do underground are viscerally brutal. You know, um, but no, it's not quite as romantic as Peaky Blinders makes it out to be. Um, and, and again, we have this problem with the idea of tunneling. So certainly the digging of tunnels, OK, um, as you and I would imagine a tunnel to be, would have been done by specialist diggers, specialist tunneling companies. And those guys in those units weren't soldiers per se. They were recruited specifically for that job because it's a very, very specialised job. So you would have sewer workers, you know, mains, diggers, maybe even like, you know, underground uh, diggers in the big cities, these kind of things. People who knew how to work underground and in different types of geology, they're directly recruited and sent to the front to do just that job. So, no, they're not in, they're not people from the infantry doing it. But of course, what happens is that very, very quickly, the scale of what's going on is ramped up and there isn't really enough people to recruit from those industries to do it. So quite quickly, the army go through all of their units looking for people who have any kind of experience in this kind of thing, because, of course, we know that, uh, you know, we've got a largely volunteer or conscripted army. So these guys would have had a lot of other skills in uh, main in normal life so they would come out and join the tunneling companies and go to work where we do have um infantry being underground uh, in one instance uh, primarily is that they're uh, running security they're supporting the diggers underground so you would have people who were in the yeomanry or in the infantry who would be down there and and down there right at the you know right at the front like if you like underground but they're not going to be the ones doing the diggers. One, doing the digging rod. But once you go beyond that and you get to the point where these tunnels have been constructed, um, then all of a sudden you are getting infantry involved. Okay, Not necessarily at the front planting explosives to undermine trenches, or they certainly would have been carrying them down there. But they're going to be using the subway tunnels to get from A to B. They're going to be living in the souterrains and the caves and the cellars and that sort of stuff underground. And of course, you're not going to have Germans breaking into a, a Souterrain through a, you know, through a, a chalk wall when their lines are two miles away. So you're not going to have the same kind of risk um, in those areas as you would do right at the front. Um, so it's a little bit, Peaky Blinders is taking a few liberties, but, but not as many as you might think. Um, and of course, you know, th- this is a war. Things are slightly fluid. You know, it, it isn't just X does Y. That's not how things work. Um, but no, generally speaking, the tunnels are being dug at the front by professional tunnelers. 
um, not soldiers per se. So what's it like in these tunnels? I mean, you've done quite a lot of this and uh, you know, obviously you've got videos, but what's the, what's the smell, uh, sound, um, just the sort of temperature? Obviously they vary from place to place, but can you give us an idea? Yeah, sure. Well, this, this is where my interest is really peaked in underground, these underground structures, because much as I love military history and much as I'm a historian, I, my real interest is as an anthropologist and an archaeologist. My, my real interest is how people coped with these environments. That's where, that's where I do most of my writing and most of my research. So being able to go into these places and, as we talked about earlier, experience it as close as possible um, to what went on, I really focus in on these ideas of the senses and how we construct the worlds around us. So what it's like down there, um, well, if you're claustrophobic, don't bother. Um, I mean, really don't bother. We've had instances before, We uh, a few years ago, we took uh, a television company, a director and a cameraman, uh, deep down into the La Folie system beneath Vimy Ridge. You're talking hours to get, get into the thing. It goes on for an awful long way. And about halfway along, uh, the height is about 1.5, 1.6 meters all the way. So it's not it's not easy to walk through these tunnels. They're offensive fighting tunnels, and there is a quite a big camouflage charge. Which a camouflage charge is a relatively small amount of explosives that's designed to blow up an enemy tunnel underground. So not to cause huge damage, but to to bring in that tunnel. And this camouflage charge is still there. It's still it's not live because we've we've uh, in the Duran group we've disarmed it. Um, but the explosives are still there. And, and while we were there, this one particular guy from the film company, he had an absolute you know, claustrophobic meltdown when he saw the explosives in front of him. And it's very difficult. What do you do then? It's going to take three or four hours to get out. So, you know, you, when you're in that scenario, we calmed him down and he was OK in the end. and We could we could carry on. But it doesn't half show that if you don't think you can do it, don't do it. Um, because you could be more of a hindrance than a than a help down there. And the main reason for that, why people have that kind of sensorial overload, is because underground, in effect, the way that you navigate or negotiate space is flipped. Okay. So on the surface, we, you and I are going to go about our daily lives uh, using our eyes primarily. I mean, even while we're recording this podcast, we're looking at each other's gorgeous faces over zoom yeah, particularly yours um so we we navigate in a certain way okay but when you're in an environment that's completely dark uh, that's highly restricted and where your senses and your sort of bodily protection if you like your defenses as well as senses are going overdrive that is just flipped so when i'm underground and particularly um, if you want to imagine those peaky blinders scenes in the dark at the front like that in tunnels, you're not using your eyes at all. You know, we're human beings. We can't avoid seeing, but we're not using our eyes. We're far more concerned with, well, particularly in that instance, you're concerned with sound, um, what you can hear and making the slightest sound that can be picked up. You're also touch becomes alive. You know, not only does everything feel different in the dark, but of course, these places are strewn with uh, munitions, you know, trip hazards, things collapsing, walls that can just come off if you touch them. 
you know so you're you're very much in tune with your touch you're very much in tune with your sound uh, with the way you can hear but you're not using your eyes anymore so being in there can be quite intense just from that perspective chalk um very dusty so it doesn't take very long to be in these environments before your lips are coated in chalk everything kind of tastes a bit chalky you know um temperature wise the temperature actually stays fairly constant underground it's about 11 or 12 degrees so the temperature not not too bad the two biggest um worries for us and certainly these were two of the biggest worries for uh miners at the time uh is lack of oxygen uh, because of course you can hit some pockets where there's no oxygen and also other gases which could be there uh, the ones that the tunnel has struggled with the most was carbon monoxide gas which of course can't be smelled seen anything else um, and it's a killer you, you, you're not going to know it's killed you uh, they would get by uh back in the day with uh with with a little help from what they would call the tunnelers friends so uh normally canaries you know that sort of thing budgies little birds who they could take down there who would suffer death first from the monoxide and fall off their perch and allow them to leave, uh, which sounds a bit grisly. Uh, what's even more grisly, of course, is that these little birds that they take down in the cages, they'd have a, uh, if they were to die of carbon monoxide poisoning, the first thing these birds would do would be tense up. Their muscles would all tense, like spasm. And of course, what that meant is they grasp onto their perch. So theoretically, you could have a dead canary on its perch that's got its claws stuck in it. And of course, it doesn't go thump. So the miners don't know. So they used to have to cut cut the claws of the birds so that they couldn't, you know, so that they would fall off their perch. What we use, <coughs> excuse me, what we use, of course, is much more advanced kit. We've got uh, gas monitors and that kind of thing, which we use when we're underground. And we have rebreathing equipment, um, which we take with us as well. So we can operate um, safely, but very much like it would have been for First World War guys, the same worries, the same pressures, um the in the war they took it so seriously that there was a whole um unit uh in each tunnel there'd be a unit of men uh, known as proto men and these guys would have what look a bit like aqualung on them so that if this kind of danger happened from gas they would be able to go down and rescue the guys at the front it was taken very very seriously um and i've certainly been in tunnels before uh where the oxygen's dropped to a very low level you know and when it does it's very very unpleasant and and you're very happy that you're there with people who are professional and like-minded um i mean i want to i want to while, while we're talking about this i, I absolutely want to emphasize that one of the things uh, that must be paid attention to when you're working in these environments is you don't go into dangerous places okay i mean you know if you before we go in anywhere we test the oxygen levels etc no one's putting on breathing equipment and going down into tunnel systems that's not how it works but quite often you can be walking along a tunnel and hit a bad pocket of air which you just didn't know was there um, and that's why we have things like rebreathing kits and gas alarms to get us out of trouble not to protect us going in if you see what i mean um so yeah you you, you end up down there having a, an assault on the senses absolute assault on the senses it can be disorientating and it takes a lot of time to get used to a lot of time to get used to and is it dangerous 
uh well i don't tell my wife it's dangerous put it put it that way i uh i mean i i, I yes it well it's certainly if you're untrained or uninitiated it, it can be lethal uh i mean we there are many and many a time when we've exposed tunnels entrances and we haven't even got you know your body hasn't even gone all the way into the hole before all the gas alarms are going off so if you didn't have that kind of kit and you didn't know what you were doing and you found a hole somewhere in a French field and decided to go down and have a look, you, theoretically, you could be out of oxygen a few feet down. So it can be dangerous. There's also um, problems with collapses. Tunnels will collapse, although chalk is relatively stable. The other thing we have um, is that quite long tunnels certainly subways laterals that sort of stuff you would have had some form of ventilation and that meant that you've got in effect access to the surface in the form of a, best way to think of it, it's like a chimney i suppose but those will be um after the war once things of fields were plowed back in and that sort of thing they were filled so we quite often find as we're walking along we might be able to get 200 yards down a tunnel and then there's another blockage and that blockage has to be dug out to get to the 200 yards beyond and that's when you really, really need to know what you're doing um, to, to engineer that to the point where you can go through that is a serious, serious undertaking. There are times it will take weeks or months to be able to do it just to get through. Um, and it requires spiling, heavy duty engineering, that kind of thing. So without the combined skills of the people I work with in the Duran group, um, I, I wouldn't be able to do this work. There's no way I could do it on my own. Um, because it is it is hazardous um, but you mitigate those risks by not being by being professional by knowing what you're doing experience and are there any tunnel networks which are open to the public in france or belgium yeah more than you think actually um it, it comes back a little bit to what we said at the beginning about how there being there's so little of the surface battlefields left apart from these pockets um, but yeah, there are there are tunnels open. I mean, um, at Vimy Ridge, you can walk down the Grange Tunnel, uh, which has been preserved. There are the Wellington Mines at Arras that we've mentioned, uh, which are open. You can go down and look at those as well. There are other places. There are forts uh, around Verdun you can go in, the Dragon Cavern on the Shamanda Dams. So there are a number of places you can go down into. The problem you get with these places is they are completely sanitised. So they're full of emergency lighting, exit signs, walkways, uh, you know, you name it. OK, and not only that, but you have, you know, reference boards, all the things a good museum should have. Those places, other than being underground, that you have no, they're, they're not really adequate to understand what was going on down there. They certainly serve a purpose because without them, we would have zero idea if you're in the public. Um, but. It really is interesting to see the, the amount of sanitization and health and safety that's required to allow the public to go in these places officially is so much that the app by actually doing that, you completely ruin the experience. So um, the Duran Group um, have facilitated research expeditions underground. And so there are opportunities for people in the public to come and experience these places. But the, the ones that are uh the ones that people could get into uh that we work in will never be open to the public it, it's just it, it wouldn't be worth doing it and that's a real shame that's a real shame 
Um, but unfortunately, it's just it, it, it's the trade off. It's the trade off between working in a place like that and exposing it to the public. And it's very, 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 very hard balance to do. I assume many of the entrances that you use are confidential with the landowners. Obviously, there are, you know, you don't want people going down there and missing. And, and it's a very, very complex business and their access is controlled for obvious safety reasons. But finally, well, well, uh, Tom, hold on a sec. Hold on a sec. Yeah, no, no, that, that's an interesting point. Um, I mean, one of the things that's a bit strange about this is that it, the tunnels that we, we know where all these tunnels are. Right. There's trench maps are plenty. We can find them um, and they're pretty accurate, you know, so we can tell where you can get into a tunnel system. The thing is, it's just actually engineering to get in. You know, there aren't any there, there aren't any nice little holes with stairs going down that you could just sort of come across, really. So the biggest problem is actually engineering to get into one anyway. But you are right. They tend to be on private land. Um, you know, the French don't always want people from England coming over and rooting around on their property. Um, so getting into them is goes far more far beyond knowing how to, right? You it's not just a question of finding it on a map and digging. You really do have to start getting an awful lot of permissions and consents and things in place before you do it. Um, but every once in a while I see somebody on Facebook, you know, who in France has got bored and decided to climb down inside a tunnel. I mean, they're crazy, but it, it does happen. But yeah, you, you've got to protect it because, as you say, people can um, people can get seriously hurt in there if they don't know what they're doing. And and not only that, but these places are mazes. You know, this, this isn't just one tunnel. You can. I'm working in a tunnel at the moment, uh, or a system at the moment, um, a German tunnel system actually. And pretty much every time you get to a junction, there are three or four options at each junction, and it goes on for a very, very, very long way. I haven't explored it fully yet. Myself and my colleague who are trying to record it managed to get an hour down it before we had to turn around and come back. So, you know, very extensive. You could very, very easily get lost in there, very easily if you didn't know what you were doing. So there is a reason why um, these things are slightly protected like that, if you like. My final question is, where can people learn more about your work and also the work of the Durand Group? Yeah, the, uh, the Duran Group has its own website, um, which people can go to. Probably easiest things to put it in Google rather than try and write down what I'm saying. But Durand is D-U-R-A-N-D. Um, we have a good website there where you can find an awful lot of um, info on the work we do. We also do things like uh, DVDs and many members of the group have written books, etc. So you can find all of that wonderful stuff on Amazon and on our website. Personally, um, well, my role as uh, editor of Stand 2 is taking up quite a bit of my time at the moment. But uh, I do, I'm due to have a monograph uh, released at the end of the year, uh, which looks into the history of underground warfare um, more fully. Although, of course, it's very hard to do this kind of stuff and get your research done when there's a pandemic on. So we'll see about that. Um, and I'm working on another, another few things. because I'm very, very interested in this idea of how landscapes were created underground. So um, I'm currently working with a colleague in Canada and we're looking at a trying to get a research project off the ground, um, which looks at the sort of cultural experience um, of indigenous troops being underground on the Western Front. So indigenous Canadian, New Zealand, Australia. So, yeah, what, watch this space. Hopefully, hopefully more coming in the future. Matt, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Tom. 
You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>